Welcome to the A Fire Podcast. Now streaming on Apple, Google, Spotify, and more. In April of last year, I virtually met two fascinating thought leaders. Bruce Katz, who's an author and co-founder of New Localism Associates, and Frances Kern Menony. She's the director of strategic partnerships at Cross Street Partners and is also part of an advisory collective called Right to Win Cities, which consults communities on public-private partnerships. The question we discussed a year ago was pretty simple. How will downtowns come back after COVID? And the question has become even more important today. So I thought it would make sense to invite them to talk about where we are now. And they accepted my invitation. So thank you, Francis and Bruce, for joining me on the AFIRE podcast. Thank you. Um, we are, I'm excited to be here, and I appreciate the forum. Um, yes, a year ago when we, when we sat, when we were, this came upon us, um, and based on all the work that I do in communities, and um, I'm familiar with how fragile the networks are and the energy it needs um, and the vibrancy and the energy, the, the, the momentum that's required to get things moving. And so as I'm sitting in my own home and watching the, the world stop moving, um, in the way that it did, I immediately thought of my friends and colleagues and the work that I do uh, with regards to how it was going to impact the cities, because cities are humming organisms that when you stop them, you're going to need shock paddles to get them back up again. And so we uh, started working with Bruce on a couple different things, and I intentionally at, some, at that point, Gunnar had reached out to you because... I was thinking of your work and your um, affinity for uh, the the thoughts you've done on desire lines, and so I was imagining, you know, we're going to be in this for a while. So what's it going to look like when we try and reopen? Um, and it, you know, I I also just reread the the things that we did a year ago, and um, it's interesting because we are, now have a boatload of uh, federal funding flowing to communities, and what what we had before was already fairly fragile. And so, when we accept this these funds and we try and stand the communities back up and reopen, it's going to be all the more important to make sure that we're not flowing funds onto a network that is not held together in the strongest possible way. So that's how I ended up working with uh, Bruce and you on this particular piece. I love what you said, Francis, there about the, the definition of what a city is. And you talked about it as an organism, uh, an organism that needs to be brought back to life, perhaps with, with paddles. Uh, but uh, and, and perhaps that's what the federal funding is. But can you talk a little bit more about that? I, I know we're supposed to talk about the, you know, the article and where we've come since then, but I, I think in that area in particular, there's something interesting that's important for us as we try to figure out, all right, money is uh, coming. Um, where does it go? What does it do? And is it going to help or not? What is a city? Yeah, so I, I think that is a tough 
we wind up using definitions in the work that we do, and, and it's, we have to define things, but once a, something gets a definition, then it loses its flexibility. Um, and you have to have constructs of some kind in order to, to be able to function. Um, but I think as a, as a society or just as, as humans, we get wrapped up in what those definitions are um, and where we lean too hard on city as a definition um, or town or village. And um, they are, I think we, that then starts to whitewash and minimize or mute the authenticity of the place because we've given it this construct. And so then it departs from its authentic self. It becomes not the confluence of two rivers or not a port on a lake. Uh, it is now the city of Cleveland uh, or Cincinnati um, to use those two. And I, I think that, 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 that there is danger in, in that, in that it, it artificially removes what, what was the original purpose of the city and it becomes something that it's really not. Uh, it also, it, it's easy, I mean, to be fair, it's easier to manage something when you have it defined in that way, when you have a definition around it. Um, because then you wind up with, you know, you, you can point, you can, the people running the city can then turn to the city next door and say, well, they're doing this, so we're going to do it. Um, but that also is counter to getting to a community's authentic self. And so... Um, yeah, I think that is uh, how we define things gets pretty critical in in how we wind up helping them. Define things. It's interesting, though, a lot of what you're describing is almost like defining people. So Cincinnati and Cleveland uh, and New York and, you know, any other city that you might describe are all unique individuals uh, and that there may be difficulty just because we tend to put a template on all of them. I, I, I hear you loud and clear in terms of the definitions being useful, but at the same time, perhaps also dangerous because it blinds us to what's actually there. Bruce, did you have any thoughts on that? Well, when I was at the Brookings Institution, we spent literally two decades trying to redefine cities and metropolitan areas in the United States and outside the US. Uh, metropolitan areas are the unit of the global economy. What has happened in the last 25 years in Western societies, particularly in the United States, is that the city, the core of the metropolitan area has been revalued uh, because of density, because of proximity, because of agglomeration, because of the mashing up of universities, hospital systems, mature companies, uh, arts and culture. Uh, cities have been revalued in the United States. Uh, we, were, we are the land of sprawl, um, but our central business districts are midtowns uh, where universities and cultural institutions tend to be concentrated because of decisions made 100 years ago as we move from a manufacturing to a service economy. And as innovation became something which was uh, highly concentrated and co-located, we moved from research centers at the periphery, think research triangle outside of Raleigh-Durham, to innovation hubs around Carnegie Mellon, Georgia Tech, MIT, et cetera, et cetera. 
So, you know, from an economic perspective, the metropolitan area is the unit of the global economy, but cities, because of their density, because of their location, because of their assets, have become fundamentally revalued. In the post-pandemic world, um, we are beginning to question, obviously, issues of density, particularly around office work, and that could have some dramatic implications in the near term, particularly for central business districts. And the folks I work with, mayors, business chambers, philanthropies, universities, are thinking very hard using the federal funds that Francis has described to be a bulwark against an out-migration of office work and all the ramifications and implications that would have um, for fiscal revenues, for employment density, and for small business activity. So we're in a very interesting transition period right now, which I think is going to, particularly in cities with big cities, you know, New York, Philadelphia, Boston, et cetera, there, it, it could re-scramble the geography of work and the geography of innovation have enormous implications for investors. Um, we don't quite know what's going to happen, but I can tell you cities are baking in some assumptions right now because they have to do budgets over multiple years. And these central business districts and downtowns are such a large portion of their revenue generation. And a lot of those assumptions will probably prove to be less than precise. <laughs> Absolutely. I would say that the, a, um, a city's, the city's relationships to its people has changed and shifted. It was shifting before the pandemic. And, I, and, and, it's, and as we think about how we're going to reapply, as the city tries to relate to its people again with regards to bring them back downtown, reopening, we need to make sure. I, I, it's a paramount that the cities are studying best how they're relating to the end user. What is the highest and best use of that city? Um, you know, in regards to just the, the mechanism that is the community, but what Bruce just said reminded me of, you know, as we do this, it's got to be for the end user. Um, and I think oftentimes we, with regards to the remarks I was making previously, that we are too far afield from who is using the city. Um, and if we don't, and that gets to the uh, inclusion component of this, uh, rebuilding exercise, uh, we got to make sure that what we're doing is for the people who are going to yeah. be using it. And we have further blinders on in that we can't just see what people are doing because, you know, there's still a high degree of lockdown uh, in most cities and we don't know what people are doing and we're not seeing them go to stores and do this and do that. So it's very, very difficult to make these decisions without data. Um, now, I, I promised you that I wouldn't get you off track too much, but I did. So I apologize, Francis, but um, would love to kind of get a sense of what on earth were the three of us thinking uh, a year ago? Well, you know, uh, I, the complexities article was also designed around the you know, inherent knowledge that, that when we start thinking about and the way federal funding current prior to the pandemic historically has any funding has flowed into a community um, it it gets put into these silos and so housing transportation uh, 
education, it all comes in in different mechanisms and if there isn't in different vehicles and if it, you know, and that gets to the complexities of how, you know, how we need to take a look at what we're going to do moving forward um, because oftentimes that incentivizes one arm of the body not to be inadvertently not knowing that the other arm is off doing, you know, you're going to build a road over here, you're going to fix this part of town. And uh, meanwhile, all the housing's going in on the other side. So um, I think when we were writing that piece, one of the things we were trying to get in front of is let's get, let's start now on getting systems in place to prevent that type of, uh, to prevent that as much as possible. Um, and also, provide a better glide path for, you know, if we're going to have the federal funding, or it's not just federal funding, I keep referring to it as that, but if we're going to have funding flowing back into the cities again, um, we need to ensure that the, you know, it's the cities are prepared to receive it. Um, and I think we were trying to tee them up in a way so that you're, you know, you, you've got your ordinances and your, you're, you're, you're in a place such that you can receive that well. So when you're in lockdown, this is what you can be doing. You're, you're not sitting idle. You can be getting yourselves ready for a street initiative or whatever it is that might be coming into the future. And do you think that cities have been idle in the last year, other than, you know, panicking, I guess, <laughs> about all the things that need to be taken care of? But when it comes to the, the rebuilding of their downtowns, how have we done? Well, so I, I don't do this. I, I, don't, I don't know if Bruce is familiar with this particular piece. Uh, to be fair, you have one, you have what, I'm just calling it 10 people running a city. And they are, were those people were entirely focused on keeping, keeping the city from completely falling apart in that they're doing triage. They're in the middle of their ER. They're doing their ER work, right? And there wasn't very rarely, and, I, and maybe Bruce has seen this more than I have, there were very few people that, or communities, I should say, that had the availability to do two things at once. You can't plan for, you know, you, you can't be planning the rehab of the city while you're trying to keep it from expiring altogether. Um, so, but I do, I do think there was, and, and rightfully so, a very much focused on the immediacy of what was happening. Um, uh, but so, yes, I think we are behind nationwide on getting to how we're going to rehab ourselves. And what are we starting to do now? Now, you, Bruce, you talked a little bit about uh, how um, we're in a transition period and people are baking in assumptions that, you know, with the best to the best of our knowledge kinds of assumptions. Uh, but what do you think people are or cities are doing that will be transformative, that will be positive, and that will continue to build the strength um, of our cities. So the one thing about cities uh, compared to national governments and state governments is that cities are networks of public, private, civic, and other leaders. Um, governments are just governments. Um, so you know, I, I, I do think that what what cities are capable of doing are multiple things at the same time. And over the past year, what I saw were a group of cities 
places like St. Louis, places like Tulsa, places like Cleveland, um, Cincinnati, that while that pandemic was raging and the public sector leaders, the mayors in particular, were the front lines to deal with so many issues, not just the pandemic, but the racial reckoning in the United States, uh, police injustice, um, private and civic leaders were beginning to strategize about what comes next. And so a bunch of cities are prepared for not just finger in the dike funding, keep businesses stabilized, but remaking the physical infrastructure of cities so that our cities, many of which are along rivers and lakes, are more resilient against flooding and climate change, but also bulking up the innovation infrastructure of cities, uh, centers of research excellence, commercialization, technological advancement, um, small business entrepreneurial formation and growth. Some of that are in downtowns, a good portion of that is around midtown areas, particularly when you talk about life sciences and other uh, key sectors of our economy. The last piece, and really gets to what Francis was talking about, cities are intensely focused on inclusive growth post-pandemic. The pre-COVID economy was highly inequitable, uh, left many places and people behind. So as we go forward, there, with federal funding, but frankly, the federal government is just an investor. Cities deliver. The federal government supports projects. Cities build plans. And I, I think what's going to happen over the next three to six to nine months is there's a pack of cities that are going to separate themselves because they're taking President Biden at his word that we're going to build back better. Uh, what that requires is we have different vision of, of economic restructuring and physical growth but also doing things differently. Tulsa, Oklahoma just merged three public authorities, parking authority, industrial authority, redevelopment authority, into one authority for economic opportunity. And they are very focused on a near downtown area called Greenwood, the site of the 1921 race massacre, for a different kind of inclusive development and growth, building off the European public asset corporate model out of Copenhagen, out of other cities. So I think something's afoot. You know, crisis usually begets enormous innovation. Uh, we saw that in the New Deal. We saw that in the post-World War II era in the United States. We built the whole research industrial complex in the U.S. post-World War II. I think we're going to see some remarkable innovations, both in what we do in our cities and how we do it. But there's going to be disruption here. There's, it's not going to be like, you know, immediate comeback. Uh, so we're going to see cities thinking about different approaches so that they can mitigate the harm and maximize the long-term impact. I'm often mystified when people talk about change and innovation as if it's fun. Um, it, it's not. Uh, it's painful. It's difficult. It's uncertain. Uh, but, and it tends to only happen when it has to happen. And uh, you're right, Bruce. I mean, here we are sitting in, 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 in a crisis that's still going on. Uh, it's, we're not completely through it yet, um, although it's a lot better. But it, 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 if this doesn't prompt innovation, it's hard for me to imagine what will. I don't want to imagine uh, what will uh, beyond something like this. But, you know, we are in that world. Well, when we think about it then, 
part of this is the private um, and how real estate investors potentially can invest in infrastructure, some of them, but they also certainly are investing around what's happening and, and thinking about what makes sense economically. And I think that quite often the community, you know, obviously the exception is, you know, there's marvelous investors that really know the city, that really know the, the controllers and everyone else and, and are really working in tandem with them. But that's not the rule uh, to a certain extent. We tend to be in different silos and we don't always know what's going on. Um, and this is really a question for both of you because I think you're interacting with people on this. Uh, how would you advise an investor that is looking at Tulsa, uh, that is looking at Atlanta, you know, how best to uh, invest into the, the flow uh, that's occurring or how best to work as a collaborator to be able to help these cities say, you know what, this is what might actually be happening. Because I think that communication level isn't there. Um, I think it tends to be one way, but how to engage in partnership. So any thoughts about, I mean, it's a, I know it's, it's, it's a magical uh, wizardry that people do. It's an art more than a science, but any kind of thoughts about how investors, especially investors that are not even US based can be smarter about how they work with cities. I'm gonna I'm gonna add to that and make it and, and and request that Bruce answer it. But you know the Europeans are so much better. They do that so well, right? And I, maybe it's our um, it's our rugged individualism that decides us. We are private. We are a public. But it's you know it the, those two things are are we are people, right? So why are we 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 draw these hard lines there? And it gets to the definition issue, but. Um, what lessons I'm going to add to Gunnar's question and, and really load it on Bruce. So we've got that coming out of Europe. Why can't we do some of that here? Why is that not working better for us here? I, I would build on that in several ways, um, particularly given to your listenership. I, first of all, I would look beyond the superstar cities. Um, the inequitable growth we had pre-COVID was not just widening racial and ethnic disparities on income, health, and wealth. They were spatial disparities. Um, San Francisco, Silicon Valley, Seattle, Boston, New York, Austin, Denver, they were basically receiving disproportionate share of growth in the United States and leaving many places in our country that have enormous assets uh, and not just legacy assets, but assets that really uh, speak directly to the challenges facing us from an innovation or a infrastructure or production perspective. Um, there are incredible investment opportunities uh, in the cities I talk to, like Pittsburgh, Cleveland, St. Louis, and Tulsa, and beyond. Uh, secondly, I think the geographic focus of investment for real estate need to continue to focus on central business districts as they restructure but also beyond central business districts. I have focused for a long time on more midtown areas where our universities are located. Um, and I think for certain sectors of the economy, these places not only will come back first, but they will become more dense, mixed uh, areas of mature companies, startup scale-ups, um, uh, investors, workforce development, particularly out of our community colleges and technical institutes. So central business districts, 
define the cores of our metropolitan area only up to a point. I think the midtown areas of our, of our country really have been underinvested in for long uh, periods of time. And many of them house you know, some of the top private sector and public sector universities in the world. And the last point I would say is um, be part of the bigger solution. Because I would say in most cities, to Francis's point, there is a small cadre of elected officials, uh, business leadership uh, groups, uh, philanthropic uh, organizations, and others that really are setting the 10 to 15 to 25 year vision for their cities uh, in the U.S. and beyond. It's public-private or private-public, depending on where you are. And for private investors to come in, uh, particularly outside the superstar cities, um, understanding where city leaders think they are going, uh, both from a physical, the physical city, which will undergo dramatic transformation because of its federal funding. Highways in many cities will either be demolished or filled in. Riverfronts will be transformed. That's going to create enormous opportunity for value in addition to the centers of excellence at our universities. Get, see, see where the flow is going in these cities. It doesn't take very long to tell you the truth. Um, that will open up, I think, a much broader set of asset classes and investment opportunities uh, around real estate and beyond. Agreed. Agreed. I think it's interesting that um, in the first quarter, uh, we did our annual investor survey asking our membership, essentially, uh, where they wanted to invest and in, in the following year. Um, and we've asked essentially the same question for 30 years around, you know, what markets, what cities uh, do you want to invest in and what do you want to increase your exposure to? Uh, generally speaking, the top five are exactly the cities that you would expect. They're the superstars. They're, they're, they're the core gateway markets like New York, uh, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Washington, D.C., Chicago, etc. Um, so at no point in 30 years was a secondary or tertiary market number one. This year, the top market was Austin, Texas. Now, Boston was number two, not to be, you know, that's kind of what you would expect, especially given their tech corridor and, and, and where the investing is happening there, where the growth is happening. Their Midtown, if you will, uh, has done extraordinarily well. Um, but then you have Dallas, you have Atlanta. Uh, these are not the typical cities to see in the top five. And then New York is number five. Uh, they're not going to leave New York, nor should they. But there is a... Uh, a concerted appreciation for these secondary markets, these other cities and tertiary cities, uh, in great part, partially because of chase for yield. Um, you know, buildings are pretty expensive right now in New York. Um, but it, that is part of it. That's only part of it. The other part of it is they're seeing where the growth is. They're looking for growth. They're looking for the demographics. Uh, you know, where are the educated young people that are going to build the next Google? Um, you know, where's the venture capital going? So they're looking for the healthiest economies and the healthiest social environments in these cities because all those things tend to be a, they, they feed on each other. You, you can't have one without the other. Um, you can't have a bunch of bright people wanting to live, young people wanting to live in a place that is unlivable. Uh, so having all of those things together makes sense. So the, the real estate due diligence, when they look at cities, they're asking the same questions that I think cities are asking of themselves and how to be there. 
So it, it's just the most logical partnership. And to your point, Francis, yes, that's very much more of a European way uh, in terms of how investing has happened in public-private partnerships, but it's not completely foreign to the United States. Uh, we've outsourced major chunks of how we run our country for a couple of hundred years. We, will we are going to do it again. And my hope is that cities will see whatever happens from the federal government as, as a kind of seed capital that they can then leverage and, and create something far grander uh, and, and far more helpful. But it's, it's, um, I think it's an interesting picture. I love what you both of you paint in terms of this optimism, in terms of where things are going. Uh, I almost hesitate to ask this question, but it tends to be illustrative. Uh, and maybe Francis, you want to take it. What are you, what are you frightened we're not paying enough attention to right now that we need to focus more tightly on? Where's the risk in the next year of of money falling from the sky into our cities? Well, I think I've, I shared this previously, at least with Bruce. I think the the as we talked previously about the uh, the definitions around what a city is and all that, um, we cities have this have a moniker, and there's there's a politic around it, and there are people who are on one side of loving cities, and there are people who are on the other side of loving cities. So we've got my concern at the moment what might keep me up at night is we have an opportunity here to do, we have we, with the American rescue plan and the funding that came through last year, um, uh, through those rescue efforts, I, I am, I am concerned that we're not going to get it right. And, uh, funding for this communities will not cease whole cloth, but we, this is our moment. We ought to do well by ourselves. And so uh, that's 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 one of my one of the things that keeps me up at night. Um, so I'm going to see what Bruce has to say about that. Well, I I would say for cities to excel, whether it's with federal money or private civic investment, you need institutions that have capacity, capital, and community standing. Uh, capital is wonderful, but if you don't have capacity and community standing, um, your your visions, your project design will not be really align with market dynamics and, and local priorities, and you won't bring your citizenry along for the ride. Um, and a lot of things will be blocked. So right now, I think in many cities, we've inherited a post-World War II institutional infrastructure, public authorities, ports, airports, departments of transportation, water, sewer, housing, schools. Uh, you know, institutions really matter um, public institutions or quasi-public institutions really matter. This is why the Northern Europeans, Copenhagen, Stockholm, Helsinki, uh, throw in Amsterdam, throw in some of the German cities, Hamburg in particular, this is why they excel. They have public institutions with capacity capital and community standing, and then they're able to leverage up private and civic capital for long-standing impact. U.S., it's a bit tired. And so I think as we go forward with this torrent of federal money, we need to use this moment to transform our institutions, get them ready for the next 25, 50 years. Tulsa is doing that. Um, I think other cities will follow, but this is as important as can we implement the federal act de jure. Uh, I think we need to be focusing on, are we built for purpose? You know, do we have the institutions that can engage with institutional investors? Do we have that capacity, that knowledge and expertise? So 
we have a bit of modernization. I, I think our institutional infrastructure is basically 70 years old. It, it feels it. It looks it. And this should be a moment. I'm not sure the Biden administration totally gets this, but I think mayors get this and business and civic leaders get this within cities. That, that's an interesting picture and, and, and uh, actually, you know, inspiring. Uh, here, here's the job that we have to do. Uh, let, let's figure it out and let's figure it out with uh, mayors. Plus, I, I, I think I need to take another look at Tulsa uh, after all that you've said, Bruce. I, I think that's exciting. Well, we, we've kind of run out of time. Uh, this has been fascinating. I hope uh, all of you uh, that are listening to this uh, take uh, the opportunity to look up uh, uh, Bruce Katz's uh, uh, writings uh, on, on his website. Is there a, a website address for that that you'd want to share? Uh, thenewlocalism.com. That was my most recent book. Uh, with Jeremy Nowak, and I blog every week or two and uh, on the topics that we're discussing with Francis and others. And, it, it, and his blogging is not the typical, this is what I had for breakfast today uh, kind of blog. Uh, it's sophisticated, thoughtful, uh, and it brings uh, new light on a lot of other, other issues. Uh, but I would encourage everyone to take a look at that and, and, and look at the article that was authored by Bruce and Francis uh, within that blog as well. I think it, it's well worth reading, even though it's a year old now, uh, which is hard to believe. Uh, I would encourage everyone who's listening to make sure, uh, if you haven't already, to subscribe to the AFIRE podcast. Uh, you can, uh, can subscribe through Apple, Amazon, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and I'm sure there's a couple of others, but they're not written down in my notebook right now. So make sure you do that. And I want to thank Francis and Bruce for being a part of the A-Fire podcast. You've been listening to the A-Fire podcast. Remember to subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform, including Apple, Google, Spotify, and more. A-Fire is not engaged in providing tax, accounting, or legal advice through this podcast. No content included here is to be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any asset. Some information, including the A-Fire podcast, may have been obtained from third-party sources considered to be reliable. A-Fire is not responsible for guaranteeing the accuracy of third-party information. The opinions expressed in the A-Fire podcast are those of its respective contributors and do not necessarily reflect those of A-Fire. To learn more about the A-Fire podcast, including underwriting and guest opportunities, visit afire.org slash podcast.